0: Mahler's scherzo movement is as eerie and grotesque as the first movement is light-hearted and paradistic. It features a scordatura solo violin, a violin that's tuned a full step higher than the rest of the strings. This is to affect a harsh, strident sound. Mahler directs that it be played like a fiddle. Its rough and screechy quality fitting the character of Freund Hein a legendary figure in German mythology associated with death striking up the band. He is like a combination of Mephisto and the Fiddler on the Roof. Here he leads the orchestra in a dance movement in which a contorted Lendler theme goes round and round, winding its way through a variety of fascinating subsidiary material in which all ensembles take part. The movement has been aptly called a dance macabre by Neville Cardus and A Dance of Death by Deacon Nuland. It's mythical fiddler leading the participants ever so gently, yet cunningly, to the netherworld, much like the dark fiddler beckons the two lost children to follow him into oblivion in Delius's opera A Village Romeo and Juliet. As Lagrange points out, this is Mahler's only real dance movement since the scherzo of the First Symphony, and it anticipates the Lendlers of the Fifth and the Ninth Symphonies. Mahler could not have been more explicit about his intention to create music that would appear grotesque and frightening. To this end, he gives the brass a leading role, having them imitate ghostly sounds that go bump in the night through inventive use of piercing accents and ghoulish stopped tones. Sharp contrasts and striking outbursts conjure up spectral visions. Repeated 16th note figures and shifting trills add rhythmic and decorative touches to the shadowy apparitions evoked by the brass. Yet, as Derek Cook noted, the overall effect is not gruesome, but disquieting. What Mahler evokes here is more the nature of a Wunderhorn-esque fairy tale of nightmarish visions that might do no more than frighten the tender-hearted sensibilities of a child than an horrific vision of terrifying demons seeking their prey. In fact, the trios, dominated by woodwinds and bourdon basses, exhibit a good-natured Austrian joviality. The second trio anticipates the heavenly joys of the finale. As is so often typical of Mahler's scherzos, grotesque passages sound more Mephistophelian than satanic. They might send a chill up the spine, but do not horrify. While in expanded scherzo form with two trios, the movement's structure also contains elements of a rondo, or round dance, that contrasts with the principal Lendler subject in a montage of thematic and motivic interplay. For all its contrapuntal spinning of melodic and rhythmic material, the orchestration is relatively lean, eschewing more horrific effects than might have been produced by trombones, tubas, and percussion. The structure is modeled on the scherzo of the Second Symphony, and like its predecessor, is often kept in motion by an underlying rhythm. By the use of this perpetual motion undercurrent, the scherzo refers back to the opening movement that contains a similar underlying rhythm. Notwithstanding Mahler's express intentions to the contrary, there is also an implicit sense of parity here, as there was in the first movement. Frequent use of Baroque and Rococo mannerisms and ornamentation recall the classical style caricatured in the opening Allegro. Recall that the main theme of the first movement is in the style of a waltz, despite being played in strict 4-4 time, while the theme of the first trio in the Scherzo movement, although in triple meter, sounds much like a march. These provocative inconsistencies function as paradistic effects that tweaked the audiences of Mahler's day and caused quite a stir during the symphony's premiere. The seven-measure introduction that begins the scherzo contains three motivic elements that will play a major role throughout. First, an eerie horn figure that opens the movement, beginning with three notes rising stepwise, as did the first movement's first and fourth themes, and a falling and rising minor second taken from a variant of the sleigh bells' motive in the first movement. The second element, it consists of repeated staccato sixteenths in oboes and bassoons, ending with a falling second, the first note of which is trilled. This also relates to the sleigh bell motive. And third, a calliope-like whirling sixteenth note figuration played by flutes against an inverted version in clarinets, a reference to a similar phrase in the Wunderhorn song Lob des Hohen Verstandes. From which Mahler occasionally uses fragmentary thematic material to add a humorous touch, and will return in the middle movement of the Fifth Symphony. Here is the beginning of the movement to show the sequential arrangement of these three elements. The structure and tenor of this introduction can be likened to the opening bars of another Wunderhorn song, Rhine Legend. It is an early example of Mahler's penchant for beginning a scherzo movement with a brief sequential statement of the movement's principal motives that provide the listener with a kind of dramatis personae of principal thematic or motivic material that will play a significant role during the movement. After motive three, churns around a few times against repeated minor seconds from motive one, the first theme enters in the retuned solo violin with another three-note rising upbeat relating it to the first theme of the opening movement. Unlike in that theme, these introductory notes rise diatonically and end on a wrong note, E natural, sounding D, giving the theme a devilish character. It is a Lendler but a very curious one that turns upon itself and then unwinds on a 16th note phrase that relates to motive three, and therefore to Lo Verstandes. The solo violin's theme is cut off in midstream by the second theme's unanticipated appearance. The tonality suddenly changes to C major on a sustained open wind chord that creates a misty atmosphere. Muted strings play 16th note figuration that contains a variant of motive three and an inverted fragment of the first theme punctuated by sharp pinpricks in the harp that make the hairs on the back of one's neck stand on end. A sudden thrust on an offbeat unexpectedly juts out from the subdued, flickering string figuration, jolting the tonality out of kilter and causing the violins to react angrily with a rapid descending flurry of flatted notes. Woodwinds respond with a fragment of the first theme that sounds even more like a variant of motive three when played in isolation from the principal theme. The first theme is reintroduced in a strange manner. First, divided violins play it, followed by woodwinds, joined by the solo violin only for the theme's opening phrase. As the tonality shifts to the minor, motives one and two from the introduction return to round out the scherzo section. Horns in their high register, directed to blare out, and clarinets in their contrastingly low register, ease into the first trio in a more relaxed tempo, on a variation of motive one, a lusty, if somewhat arrogant version of the terror motive from the second symphony, without its terrifying aspect. When the key modulates to F major, the spookiness of the scherzo section gives way to a lighter, more relaxed atmosphere. Clarinets pompously assert themselves to a little dance step marked lustig, merrily, and played with bells up. This figure becomes the principal theme of the first trio. This trio theme relates to the main theme of the first movement because of its Lendler-esque character. It emphasizes a falling major second with a trill on the first note that gives it a gayer, more coquettish character. The trio theme is akin to the pompous oboe tune from the funeral march of the first symphony's third movement and the clarinet theme from the scherzo of the third. Violins play a dotted rhythmic figure that is a direct quote from the Rhine legend song. After the woodwinds take a few turns developing the trio theme, a melting melody in the violins generates a warm glow that contrasts with the perky variant of the trio theme played by a solo horn. In soft hues and gentle tones, the music becomes soothingly pastoral. It soon fades out gradually, working its way down to the low strings on a rhythmic figure, two eighths followed by two sixteenths, that is an inverted version of the clarinet call that introduced the trio. The introduction of the movement now returns in its original form to mark the reprise of the scherzo section. This time, The mistuned solo violin plays more passionately, as if pleading with its listeners to follow its lead. It is set against a meandering solo horn that combines a variety of rhythmic and motivic elements from the scherzo subject into a counter theme. The solo violin theme seems to take on a darker coloration, as a muted trumpet plays a variation of the terror motive that opened the trio. Orchestral texture thins out as woodwinds and then violins take turns with the highly flexible first theme, the former giving it a sprightly, playful character, the latter sounding more lyrical. Soon the second theme returns, spiced up with the trilled, falling seconds from the first trio played by oboe and clarinet. Motive one casts a shadow over the music, though hidden in the lowest register of the horns and bassoons it anticipates the return of the scherzo's introduction. The scherzo closes much as it did before, but this time muted trumpets disturb the musical flow with a piercing chord played on an upbeat that causes the violins to scamper away on a descending sequence of accented sixteenths. Horns and woodwinds bring back the introductory motives to usher in the return of the first theme, once again set against a horn counter-theme, Motive two flickers in the background as theme and counter-theme are further developed. Short rising whoops flare up on the solo violin and two flutes, anticipating the movement's closing section. Motives one and two combine with the figuration of the second theme, apparently intending to close the scherzo section with a variant of the rapid descent of the flatted sixteenths, with which it ended previously. This time, there is no thrust against which to react, so the descending sixteenths are now played tamely on a diatonic scale by the solo violin, its downward line being continued by three pizzicato sixteenths in the bass strings. A moment of silence leads to the second trio. The lighter version of the terremotive that opened the first trio in clarinets and horns is now inverted and declaimed by the first trumpet to introduce a new variation of the first trio theme begun by clarinets and continued by first violins. As before, the pace relaxes and the music seems to smile pleasantly with a hint of furtiveness. Again, a trilled falling second is prominent. The first horn outlines the Lendler theme to decorative figuration in violins. In a few measures, first violins float on a soft cloud of minor seconds against a variation of the same figuration transferred to second violins. arrogant little dance step phrase, played first in the earlier trio section by clarinets, returns in oboe and clarinets against soft flowing strings, which continue developing rhythmic figures from the, from the trio theme. For a brief moment, the closing section foreshadows the close of the entire symphony in a descending 16th note phrase in strings, giving way to the same rhythmic figure that closed the first trio played this time only by contrabassoon and bass strings. A brief development section follows functioning as a transition to the scherzo section's reprise. The emergence of D major at the beginning of this section creates a soft, warm hue against which clarinets adamantly declaim yet another reworking of the second trio theme. We get a glimpse of the finale's heavenly serenity in crisscrossed string glissandos under strident clarinets, creating a marvelous juxtaposition of divergent lines and temperaments. Another arrogant pronouncement of the clarinet dance-step figure leads into a tenderly lyrical string version of the trio theme. It soon fades as bass strings take up the rhythmic figure they played during the close of the trios, while a muted horn follows suit with motive one to reintroduce the scherzo section in its original key. Motive three in Woodwinds accompanies the scherzo theme in the solo violin now played by the lead second violin in natural tuning and more hesitantly, if no less gracefully, than before. A new counter theme in first oboe soon takes over, accompanied by a variant of itself on the first clarinet, forming a delightful, if brief, trio. Motive two is then strongly pronounced by the piccolo against motive one in the first horn and the main theme in the naturally tuned violin. After another version of the woodwind trio, both the retuned and the naturally tuned violins combine with a muted horn playing a variant of motive one that ends with the upward whooping figure heard in a previous scherzo section on violins. A solo viola plays the second part of the scherzo theme at this point. Mahler never stops refashioning and reintegrating his musical material, continuously pairing up different thematic variants in different combinations. The fascinating instrumental groupings that appear occasionally in Mahler's symphonies make one regret that he did not compose for small ensembles in his maturity. Soon the glimmering aura of the second theme returns in C major, with the sleigh bell motive two added as an ornament to the string figuration. The retuned solo violin takes over the forceful plucks from the harp that now provide counterpoint in accented eighths. Even the timpani has an important role to play here, prominently if quietly stating the little rhythmic figure first played by the horns during the first trio. A version of motive one functions as a bridge to the final coda. The three introductory motives taken out of their original order are presented in winds and then strings. They lead into the first theme of the scherzo, which will be the focus of the closing section. Violins and piccolo form a little pirouette on the opening phrase of this theme to introduce the retuned solo violin playing the phrase in its original form. Low winds and strings recall the rhythmic figure with which the bass strings close the trio sections. After the first theme's final appearance on the solo violin, motives one and two are whispered delicately in a small ensemble of winds and low strings. Night seems to close upon this spooky yet sprightly little serenade as the instruments fade away into the evening air. Freund Hind has disappeared, and all that remains are the motivic fragments that give his tune a ghostly quality cellos and basses extend motive one into the rising whoops played earlier by violins, increasing the interval with each measure. Then the oboes faintly begin the jingle motive that ends on an unexpectedly strong thrust of a falling fourth instead of the expected falling second to exaggerate its grotesque character. With this startling interjection, the movement abruptly comes to a halt. As in many of Mahler's scherzo movements, the principal elements break up and peter out at the close. This is the converse of the usual procedure, where fragmentary material appears at the beginning of the movement. Many of the themes and motives prominent in this movement will provide material for the offbeat, metrically shifting first scherzo that was to be included in the incomplete tenth symphony.